Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Kayla Urbanski. Kayla is a member of the Forum for the Built Environment's Future for Tomorrow group and the Law Society's Legal Voices for Tomorrow Forum, which have been set up for legal professionals to deliberate on matters relating to climate change. But today, we're going to talk about some of the issues relating to the Building Safety Act, looking at duties and competencies, and also explore the equally important but lesser known building regulations, etc. regulations, would you believe, 2023. This podcast is taking place in November 2023, and so we'll have a look at some of the recent implications of the Act as they came in in the beginning of October. So thanks very much, Kayla. Thanks for joining us. So the usual start is just to kind of find out how you go into law in the first place, but also why on earth you're specialising in construction. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a relatively junior lawyer, so I qualified September last year, trained at Burgess Salmon. Um, I kind of fell in love with construction. I'm sure my team will be very pleased to hear that because of the flexibility and the, the tangibility of the area itself. So my team do both contentious and non-contentious work and being involved with the client team pushing to get a project completed as well as helping with troubleshooting to resolve any disputes is a really unique role as a lawyer in terms of building safety. The unfortunate tragedy of Grenfell somewhat aligned with the time at which I was training and um, my colleague Tom Weld was really kind of delving into the Hackett review and following the proposals to transform the building safety regime as, as we had it during that disaster. And so I've just been assisting and supporting as we've now got to our almost fully fledged building safety regime under the building safety regulator. Is health and safety your mission or, or is construction generally and, and the, the, you know, all the gamut of interesting and terrible things that happen in construction? Do you cover all of that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, building safety itself isn't just construction. And um, there's a there's a big portion of it at the current time because it seems to be quite kind of construction led developments which are happening. There's a lot of a lot of cases in the courts with cladding disputes and kind of defective works, etc., which has then very, very nichely fallen into our expertise. But there's there's countless people across Burgess Salmon, you know, health and safety insurance is a big one. Too. To actually that's really kind of having to keep up and see what the impact of these um, new regs coming out is actually going to have on the industry. So yeah, def- construction for me is, is the core focus, but building safety is definitely a very ever-growing aspect of ever that. Ever-growing, absolutely. <laughs> you're not, not going to be short of work, I'll tell you that. Um, so look, let's, let's go to it then. It's a daft question, but if you, if you can kind of give us a synopsized version as to uh, some of the key changes in the Building Safety Act, especially after October the 1st, that would be very, very useful as a start, and then we can and maybe delve into some of the detail. Yeah, of course. The first thing to point out, um, which most people know, but some may not, is that the Building Safety Act applies pretty much exclusively to England, save for, um, I think it's parts three and four, certain aspects applying to Wales. Um, So the Welsh administration is um, still going through um, kind of formulating the implementing uh, regs for for those. And then Scotland's uh, intention is to introduce its own legislation. But again, that's still in development. So that was a that was a first point I just wanted to make clear that we're predominantly talking about England here. As you've kind of alluded to, 1st of October was uh, quite a significant date in a 
already very significant regime change. Probably one of the first keen uh, to your listeners points is the amends to the 2010 building regulations. So here we've got the introduction of almost a, a parallel set to your CDM um, duties on your clients, designers, contractors, principal designers and principal contractors. There's also been a huge shift in building control. So the building safety regulator is now the only building control authority for high risk buildings. And that includes, it's, it's quite a broad inclusion. So it's any in-scope building works to existing high-risk buildings, as well as works which could make a building a higher risk and vice versa. The can, occupation- I just, can I just kind of quickly jump in there, right? In terms of works to existing high-risk buildings, what mm. kind of works are we talking about? Imagine you're on the top floor of a 19-metre-high building and you're mm. going to be kind of fitting out your kitchen, doing electrical works or wherever it might be, which would normally yeah. you know, incur building breaks approvals. Is that now going to have to go to the building safety regulator? That's an interesting question. Um, I think the thinking is it's going to be a much uh, watered down process. So you're not going to have to go through all the various kind of hard stops and various submissions, but there's still going to be an extra kind of level of due diligence on that work because of the nature. I think it's, yeah, time will tell in terms of exactly what that means for for individuals. Um, Obviously, you've got things like the domestic clients. So it'll, it'll all come into one big discussion, I imagine, in the end of it. One big discussion in a law court somewhere near you you mean well we'll see time will tell all right okay well Um, okay sorry no that's more than fine so yeah the third third big change on the first of october is our occupation regime kicking in so you've got the duties of the accountable person and principal accountable persons and that all relates to the management of building safety risks in your higher risk buildings and that one's had some some regs kick in and then the final one is the continued path towards the building control profession becoming a regulated profession so there's transitional arrangements in place kind of leading up to I believe it's the 6th of April is our kind of next key date. Very good. Well, you know, as, as these things do, they kind of throw out more questions and answers maybe at this stage. We will be doing a second discussion on a whole range of conversations about accountable persons and gateways, etc. But I do want to just quickly ask you about gateways because it's something which confuses me, which is that because, the you know, gateway two, we've already had gateway one, we're coming on to gateway two. And that means at tender stage, you're going to have to basically submit to information to the building safety regulator as drawings which in, in effect they want them to reflect what will be built uh, so i just wonder what impact that will have on design and build the idea of design and build obviously is that you do a slightly less work up front and you resolve problems on site this is trying to turn that back around again so i wonder is design and build over I think we've reached a point on reviewing it that it's, it's not going to be the end of design and build because there's still going to be this desire to have the client uh, developer being basically having that single point of responsibility in someone involved in the project team. Um, but ultimately, the process is going to have to evolve. So you can't, you're not going to be able to get through with having that piecemeal design where you haven't thought about those building safety rate uh, risks and the management etc. It's going to have to be a far more enhanced design that then gets you through those gateway stages and kind of prevents those risks of delays because you're going back and forth with the BSR to get it to the required point. 
it might be kind of RABA work stage four level of development that we're trying to achieve in order to to get through. But I mean, ultimately, it's it's going to be an iterative process. It it needs to be if it is re- kind of retaining the design and build procurement process with the regime fully kind of weaved in and respected. Um, otherwise, as I said, it's it's going to have to be taking on all of those risks of change control, major changes, delays, extra money, extra costs for the BSR fees, et cetera. And that that needs to be minimised to the best that teams can within that procurement process. It does sound like kind of a Egan report, which was all the intention was, is that you get as much information up front as possible so that it becomes less problematic when you get on site, all those kind of issues of problems of uh, information flow and all the rest of it. So is that what's happening? Is this kind of a little nudge? I mean, it'd be, it'd be difficult to see it as any other way because you can't necessarily avoid the the risk which has been happening previously of those building safety issues being baked into the design and unless you have that at the forefront of the consideration so you, you're gonna yeah i mean design and build it will it will still live but it is going to have to adapt um, and it's going to have to involve a strong change control policy. It's going to have to involve that key coordination between those key duty holder roles to make sure that it's existing in the in the confines of the gateway regime to allow it to succeed, essentially, isn't it? Incredible. Uh, we've been trying the Egan report and um, mm-hmm. building the team and all that kind of um, harmonious working relationships for the last 40 years and it hasn't worked. So uh, it's interesting to, to find out that it's almost going in overnight. Yeah, I think I think it's one point in that, though. It ultimately reflects the seismic shift of this new building safety regime. You know, you, you read through the Hackett review. We're not we're not covering the regulation of construction products in this one, but that's an entire other conversation in itself. It's ultimately the Hackett review has led to that fundamental awakening of deficiencies in, in the regime that that stood at the time that the Grenfell fire happened. Um, gonna, it's going to be that wake up. What does this mean for the industry? And hopefully from the optimistic junior position I come from, hopefully the industry is kind of ready to take on that battle and, and succeed. Good. You're young enough not to be in, uh, imbued with the cynicism that comes uh, with age. So we'll we'll see how it all pans <laughs> out. But you, you did mention, uh, you know, cost implications and what have you. And it is interesting that I was reading, there's a, there's a couple of documents, Building Safety Regulated Charging Scheme, there's a document online which says that submissions for the building regulations application for high-rise buildings, that's the health and safety, they say high-rise, they don't say high-risk. Mm-hmm. The application fee will be £180, which seems quite, quite light. But then it says £144 per hour for their deliberations, which seems to be an endless uh, or, you know, it's an ill-defined term. And plus other charges incurred, it says. And then any amendments on site will cost £144 per hour. That's a gross insult. The main thing, how does the client budget for this? And and again, it's that kind of pressure on the architect. You know what I mean? If there's an unknown cost, then obviously the client will be a bit peeved if that cost keeps on going. And that would reflect, presumably, on the architect's lack of completed information pressure will be on the architect to get stuff kind of firm and finalised. Ultimately, this is going to be a new cost and it is going to be an additional cost that needs to be wrapped into the project. 
but it needs to be looked at as the reason that cost is there and that work is being done is to basically ensure that whole baking in of building safety risks is is avoided. And so it's, it's a crucial role that the BSR will be undertaking. And ultimately, the hope is that suspicion doesn't creep in and that it doesn't lead to you know nitpicking between who was responsible for that cost could it have been avoided but that rather that the foot's kind of on the building safety pedal so to speak and building safety is made critical to the whole process and if you've got that cooperation the coordination to address those risks and to get you through the gateways and through the process to construction then it can be looked at as a gift that if you've got your competency and you've got that, you know, that gold standard project team there, you you reduce the the need for, you know, extensive BSR reviews and going back and forth and changing designs because you've, you've thought about it up front. And so if you can get things comprehensively there, you know, at, at the first stage, then you're, you're not seeing those late major changes and the hard stops, the, you know, potential failure to secure your building control completion certificates, you know, those really arduous implications which are going to see that time and cost impact. One thing that um, I was discussing with my colleague is you've got the um, the Get It Right initiative, um, which is it's wider than building safety, but potentially it's it's a good, uh, you know, a synonymous thing to look at here for for project groups. If you can if you can get it right first time, you are going to have that really good coordination and cooperation both internally with your project team and and with building safety regulator. Uh, we've I think we've heard uh, get it right first time for for a long time now. So you know, as you say, maybe this is um, my cynicism creeping in, and maybe this is um, all going to work out well in the end. But it just seems to be to me that a lot of people in the industry just haven't got a first clue what's going on, and it's very confusing. Let me just quickly just go back mm. over what I said earlier. The health and safety executive are calling them higher risk buildings, mm. and now they're calling them high rise buildings. I'm confused. Is there a distinction, or are they just changing their mind, or is it the same thing, or what? Higher risk buildings is is where I'd suggest the predominant focus lies. So that's your building that's over 18 metres or seven storeys with two or more residential units. I think it's important to focus on that definition because it's not just one definition. It takes on um, different scope and different um, kind of parameters, whether you're in design and construction or occupation. And I don't think you can see a kind of a kin use of high rise buildings there. I mean, ultimately, the core point I think of when you ask the question is higher risk buildings are high rise in nature. Maybe that's, you know, dictating why that language is, is being used. Um, but it, it leads on to the the interesting discussion of what will come in years to come in terms of the expansion of the regime. So that creeping in of other terminology will in months to come when um, our, what I think is estimated, 12,500 to 13,000 existing higher rise buildings, plus all the new ones kind of going through the gateway regime. Once that's found its flow and has settled down somewhat, so will there be that expansion of the regime to middle rise buildings and, and other aspects? Because obviously risk in a risk averse cultural climate uh, doesn't necessarily lead to a kind of harmonious resolution of these things. You know, risk breeds paranoia, breeds more risk aversion, breeds more cost. Um, but we'll, as you say, we'll probably see how that pans out over the next uh, six months, 12 months. There's just one uh, question, I suppose, since this act applies to all buildings. Can you just give us a little bit more detail on what that really means and 
especially with reference to the Defective Premises Act, which uh, there's a lot been written about that and how liability is now much more extensive and much more retrospective. So just give us your your thoughts on that, if you would. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an important one and it links into the the real need for the profession to acknowledge that this regime isn't just for higher rise, higher risk buildings. It applies to all buildings. So we've touched on it with our duty holder regime, but the BSA came in and it also amended two quite crucial uh, pieces of legislation. So as you've hinted to there, Defective Premises Act 1972, uh, there's a right of action where the dwelling is deemed to be unfit for habitation and building safety defects have been held to to reach that threshold. And the the important point here is that applies for all buildings. So it includes multi-residential and or mixed use. And the limitation periods, both for going forwards and going back, has have really been extended. So just to go into that, it's now 15 years for claims accruing post the 28th of April this year, and it's 30 years retrospective going back from that date. So, you know, I can't quick maths here, attempting to do quick maths. That's what's that, 1992. 1992. So buildings which meet that threshold of where it's, you know, been deemed to be unfit for habitation, 1992 is where we're looking for. So we could potentially see claims in the courts for buildings pre-2000 coming through where people had, you know, come to lawyers, had been told that limitation had been met, so it was statute bar for bringing a claim, and the door's now opened again. And it, it's interesting topics from um, quite a few barristers in the area of building safety, talking about then how does your human right to, uh, the right to a fair trial come in here? Because can you feasibly see back, you know, let's say it's 1995 that you got to the point where things were fully built, you put your various folders together and handed it over retrospectively as, as, the, as the professional team can you feasibly defend yourself and it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting one to watch and that fair trial conversation because obviously architects predominantly have had to keep hold of their drawing information and specification files for 12 years uh, and then they are fully at liberty to throw them away foolish though that might be but um yeah. but the idea that you can now be prosecuted for information that you don't even hold um with with very little defense is quite is an interesting one it's, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch and it's a real shift away from that 12-year focus um, yeah. and it's something that um, I know we've updated our uh, precedents to account for these extensions of limitation and it's something the professional teams really should be aware of. They need to have really thorough uh, document management both you know I mean it's difficult to say that retrospectively but moving forwards with it being 15 years not just 12 years yeah. that really needs to be kept into account um, but not only the Defective Premises Act the Building Act 1984 section 38 um, was sat on the books but it wasn't brought into force that has been brought into force by the Building Safety Act so that's a statutory cause of action for breaches of the building regs and that basically enables a claimant to claim down because the works have not complied with the prevailing building regs and again that's all building so it's it's not just what we touched on in respect of those more direct uh, repercussions liabilities of of your principal designer principal contractor or other duty holders it's also that section 38 which is a, another door of liability for your professional team 
so section 38 is is you know synopsized in in the explanation i gave there but it's a breach duty imposed by building regs so far as it causes damage is actionable um so here it goes into a bit more detail that um damage includes death of or injury to any person including any disease or any impairment of the person's physical or mental condition so harm there is equated to that um which provides a bit a bit of context but ultimately this has only just kicked in in terms of provision coming into force so it time will tell in terms of these claims being brought um so look in terms of the building regulations etc regulations how does that sit with the building safety act uh and and, and the, there are transitional arrangements you mentioned april uh 2024 as well so building regulations regulations which is new regulations and amendment regulations which is challenging what we already know as the building regulations. You've got the Building Safety Act, which is kind of having changes and amendments and dates and transitional terms uh, creeping in all over the place. You have CDM, which was, <laughs> let's say, finally bedding in uh, 20, 15, eight years on. Mm-hmm. People are now beginning to understand principal designer duties. So question is, you know, which takes precedence since they're all statutory? And you know, that does this override all the kind of stuff about principal designers that we know from CDM? Okay. Yeah, I think it's a question you have to ask because the amount of, I mean, consultations at one point and now secondary regs coming in is probably quite overwhelming for a lot of a lot of consultants, a lot of professional teams out there. Um, I mean, ultimately looking higher, the, the Building Safety Act was this incredible piece of legislation, which when you, you delve into the detail, most have the content coming out in secondary legislation soon to follow was the position. So we're now seeing the, the, the meat to the bones basically coming out and coming into force. So I think we need to, we need to view these pieces of secondary legislation as part of the whole which is that whole building safety regime so you know you've got your focus on the bsa which is basically to ensure that you know from procurement design build occupation of high-risk buildings building safety is at the forefront cdm focuses obviously on your more in health and safety kind of standalone focus but your amendments to the building regs now sits alongside your CDM. So you're not just having to comply with those various obligations within those regulations, but also the things now set out in the the recently introduced regs with more enhanced duties in addition to that for your higher risk buildings. So it's all all one and the same uh, in terms of the general piece, but it is essentially more duties, more requirements on our professional teams in order to achieve that shift in the industry of building safety becoming the priority focus. All right. Okay. Let, well, let, let, let's let's move into some of those duties then. Yeah. So we, let, let's let's start with the, the client. Um, again, the building regulations, etc. Brackets amendment, brackets England regulations, uh, twenty twenty three. Okay. The building regulations regulations uh, states that the client must make suitable arrangements for planning, managing, and monitoring a project so as to ensure compliance with all relevant requirements. Uh, first of all, that relates to all buildings, not just mm-hmm. uh, these higher risk buildings, as we've talked about, or high rise buildings. But there's a there is a distinction. Give us a bit of clarity on this, if you could. Of course. 
in, in respect to your non-domestic client, you've got far more duties on them, as you'd see in CDM. Um, and I, I can run into those in kind of another portion if that is helpful. Um, but the, the focus of the non-domestic client point is to try and ensure that not too onerous duties are being placed on persons that essentially, you know, shouldn't have those duties. So what you see under the regs is that the same duties apply but the onus is on the other duty holders. Um, and I think the regs basically say that where there's only one contractor, it's that contractor. If it's if it's more than one, it's your principal contractor, or it could be a principal designer if it's agreed that that would be the case. And it's then on, on them to carry out the client's duties to put in place and maintain the arrangements to plan, manage and monitor the project and also take the relevant assessments of the duty holders prior to appointment. Um, much like CDM, I mean, on, on the latter point, thinking it through, it will be interesting to see how you avoid marking your own homework. But I think it's it's for me clear clear enough on that position. But I do agree that there's um there's a real need, and we did an article uh, for construction management that kind of sets out in a nice table the various duties on client, principal contractor, principal designer, and both. But there is that and portion which is then and these are your higher risk building uh duties so take your client for instance um you need to also have suitable arrangements in place to ensure that your designers and contractors on that project are aware that they're working on a higher risk building um you need to maintain a record to satisfy yourself that the principal designer and principal contractor fulfill the competency requirement of the role and also within that you're reviewing whether there's been any serious sanctions or enforcement action against those persons and then kind of flowing it through the client also needs to then make a written declaration to the BSR that they're satisfied that the principal designer contractor and other any other persons carrying out the work on that high-risk building are competent to carry out those roles so you see that there is that that and that enhancement and to almost ensure that that name is being put on the paper which enforces the need to look into it and to make sure that that competence is is everywhere in that high risk buildings development well we can talk about what on earth competence might mean in this regard and mm-hmm. how you demonstrate it in a moment but just very quickly on in terms of the client duties you were saying there in terms of domestic that the uh, onus if you if you will automatically falls on the let's say the principal contractor Unless there's a designer who then offers to take on that responsibility, but but if there is a designer and the client, therefore, because they're domestic, they're expected not to understand this fully, mm. as opposed to maybe a, you know somebody who's well versed in all this, then that duty there will be a principal designer role duty which falls onto the, the principal designer onto the architect. Am I, am I not right? Yeah, so so basically, starting off designing a let's say a ex- kitchen extension as a, as an architect automatically you will take on that principal designer role, not just in terms of CDM, but in terms of BSA. Am I right? I think the the anticipation is that CDM principal designer, you know, building regs principal designer will most likely be the same entity, same person. Um, and there's also there's also an aspect too, um, there's some health and safety exec guidance, which kind of touches on this with competence, that you can also be more than one role. But the absolute crucial point there is you don't just put your hand up and say, oh, I can do that too, because you have to have the competence and the organisational capacity in order to fit those roles and be able to perform and comply with those duties. 
duties because this is a regime that has teeth. And um, I think it's it's important that professional teams are aware that, um, well, you know, we'll touch on competence, but they're aware that there are certain real requirements here with competence and ability to meet those obligations on them or you know the organization can face repercussions and also the individuals can face repercussions which is which is a really important uh point to flag well i mean just on that point because i did read mm-hmm. an article in the aj i think it was uh fairly recently uh with jeff wilkinson interviewing uh someone talking about um what is it i've got to quote you let's say we're talking mm-hmm. now about a principal designer an architect mm-hmm. etc Duty holders must refuse to accept an appointment for works they are not competent to deliver. Okay, but that means presumably that they are—they don't have the express certification or registration, or they can't demonstrate that they are competent to carry out that work. And that's the kind of the age-old problem about you know if you're working on a housing scheme and you're offered a school, how can you possibly get the experience if you haven't got the experience in the first place to demonstrate you're competent in it? So how does I mean how does we resolve that dilemma? Or or are we all now pigeonholed in our own little silos? I wouldn't say we're pitch and hold. I I think that the the benefit of the broadness um, of how competence is defined here is that it is not just experience. So, you know, if you can demonstrate, for instance, that you've completed or are completing the relevant training um, that you've, you know, brought in certain resource to ensure that you're, you know, in a position to be prepared to take on that role and to comply with those duties, then that that's going to be okay. Um, you know, we can we can clearly see this in in some of the the regs that there's there's a, a reference, I believe, to whether the person's in training to meet the competence requirements and has, you know, the necessary supervision arrangements in place. So we're not just saying that, you know, only those principal designers only those architects that have ever you know been involved in high-risk buildings can now do them moving on because that that would that would be a really unfair position um and ultimately here we're not talking about one person has to be the principal designer we're talking about an organization so you know this whole organizational competency and capability training is going to be a key part to the profession as well as other expertise within your organization to come together and to meet that overall theme of the coordination and collaboration here to to ensure that within all of that you're then having that competence requirement and as that architect you've met those principal designer duties upon you um but but you can't just like cdm you can't outsource that responsibility so even though you're saying you're going to bring in expertise if you don't have it yourself the liability still rests with yourself yes that's right Did, did you could you explain what those liabilities? I mean, that was a very generic question, but what 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 might those liabilities refer to? What what might? Yeah, so in respect of if you get it wrong and if yeah. there is that, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's the regime generally. If you look at not just the duty holder regime, has um, yeah, has has quite pointed teeth in respect of the certain repercussions that can fall upon you. Um, so things like your softer level is you know there's a rejection of the application uh for building controller approval because it's you know things haven't been complied with and you haven't then you know in failing to comply with the duties you haven't met the certain requirements of the regime um or you know an inability to secure your building control completion certificate which then is the hard stop on occupation um but for your your individual principal designers principal contractors client you know other duty holders there's 
There's also risk of significant cost and a risk of, I think it's up to two years imprisonment. Um, as well as also there's, there's, I think it's important to flag, there's the knock-on impact on reputation. So that point for high-risk buildings that the client needs to do an assessment of the competency and previous enforcement action and any kind of misconduct, that will then potentially be flagged within that, which could then almost be, you know, the cross on your name, which, which you know, impacts the future workflow that, that you're you're going to get. All right. And uh, you, you threw in there the hard stop on occupation. What you mean is if the documentation of the Gateway 3 isn't kind of uh, fully approved by the building safety regulator, then you can't move in. It's, yeah, it's, that's it's, right. cannot occupy. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is likely that, you know, our various standard forms, we're potentially going to see a, a real, and we already are in, in the NEC suite, seeing a real review of the building safety regime and how that sits alongside our key terms. And it it may well be that we're seeing a move to practical completion to to have, uh, and you know, for your higher risk buildings, to have the gateway regimes actually thought through in that in those mechanisms. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah, very quickly. Yeah, so the example I was giving you before. So say you are a, an architect on good old-fashioned bog-standard kitchen extensions. That's what you do. What, what's the implications for that architect now? There, there are higher liabilities. There's higher, I don't know, is it training packages that they have to do? They have to have a piece of paper certification. Uh, do they have to improve their insurance levels? Are they going to be very careful about what kitchen extensions they take on? What, what's, the, what's the implications think- of this? I think it's important to remember that you've got the enhanced duties on your principal designer, your principal contractor for higher risk buildings, and that there's more of a proportionate, um, you know, competency requirement for the jobs which are being done that aren't higher risk buildings. So we're not going to be in a position where your architect needs to undertake all this training for an 18 metre building that you know if it's kitchens and etc that they're fitting, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the the kind of focus of the competency that they're ensuring that they've got and they're recording and evidencing um, and that comes back to the the somewhat kind of high level comment that the BSR have made that we're not seeking more from the industry we're seeking them to retain the competency they've got but just evidence and record it and be able to show it um, and I think that's quite a nice interlude if you're if you're happy Austin into what is competency how do we measure it how do we demonstrate it so as we've as we've said that there's the, the scary prospect of the the liability risk and the consequences of failing to have that competency and, and not meeting those duties. Quite rightly so, there isn't a prescriptive test, there isn't a definition of competency in the regime. Um, so the government have um, a model called SCEB, which you may have come across. It's your skills your knowledge, your expertise and your behaviours. And, and there's also an ethics, um, kind of another another E, some, some would say, within that's coming out of a lot of the guidance, which is um, being published. And, and that's just to, it, it's, I think it gives the comfort potentially to your professionals because it isn't just experience and it's not you have to be a higher rise building, you know, competent uh, individual organisation. Rather, you've got, so you've got your SCEB, which you can kind of put into the context of your organisation, your experience and ensure that you're hitting each of those heads. But you've also got the um, the announced suite of the public available standards. So there's 8671 which is for your principal designers. And there's 8672, which is for your principal contractors. And that shows how SCEB ethics and additional high-risk building competencies um, can be 
both met and recorded. And it's important to note with those passes that they flagged, this is not gospel, this is guidance, this needs to happen alongside the other things that are required for your organisation, which chimes with the the lack of prescriptiveness of what competence is. Um, there's, there was a recent um, government circular letter um, that, that mentioned that they're not expecting to take proactive inspections of duty holders and whether they're meeting the competencies. But that needs to come with the fact that there are those abilities to enforce. So it just because there aren't going to be proactive reviews doesn't mean you can sit back and not be focusing on getting that competency. Um, there's things like the BSR's Industry Competence Committee, which is going to be advising the regulator and the industry. There's the Building Safety Competency Foundation, HSE guidance. A lot of bodies, I, I you know, I've been getting a lot of emails of various training bodies coming out with their training opportunities for professional teams. So if you really do start delving in, there's there is a lot of material there to help professional bodies, and there is a big jump in terms of you know, if it is that you're going to be upscaling and working on those more onerous projects, which have then those more onerous high-risk building duties, there is going to be a jump and organisations need to ensure that they are making that jump and recording it and refreshing it and retaining that that know-how. So, yeah, so there's going to be a huge new consultancy advisory industry regulatory certification industry. Marvellous just on insurance i think is a really interesting one um in terms of like professional indemnity for for those principal designers principal contractors on high risk buildings we saw the you know the the post grenfell insurance uh industries you know response it's going to be an interesting one to watch as to what those insurers uh kind of respond to for for that potential you know higher higher risk within within the work that's being conducted there yeah, interesting is one word for it. Um, just, just very quickly then, uh, mm. just to finish up on this competency. Uh, the the um, onus is on the designer, principal designer, to take all reasonable steps to ensure that design work is compliant with the regulations. Uh, obviously, the conversation about what reasonable means in these circumstances uh, is uh, presumably it's tightened up the concept of what reasonable might mean. But also, um, in terms of competency, if you're doing it to the RIBA scheme, uh, the RIBA says that domestic clients may not appreciate that the extra duties architects must take on must be reflected in design fees. Well, good luck with that. But in terms of the, the gateway, sorry to come back to the beginning, mm. uh, we've gone full circle here. What kind of timescales are we talking about? Because obviously the idea, you know, in Planning terms, as you send it in, you have an eight-week where everything's mm. turnaround. Uh, but then, you, you know, seven weeks and six days, you get a letter saying, would you mind if we extend? And yeah. if you say if you say no, then forget it, uh, and everybody has to say yes. And, you know, weeks and weeks and months and months pass. Um, so are, are we anticipating that that is over because we're now in a much more – professional arrangement or are we going to have teething troubles or is- i think as, as i was reading um reading a couple of articles gosh probably about a few months ago now and i noticed that there was one about the bsr really really kind of pumping through a lot of resource upgrades so i think it was i think it was in june they were looking to bolster the bsr by 60 percent of the staffing 
there's obviously the question of it's really nice these timescales they've given, but will that happen in practice? Um, so just kind of quickly kind of looking through briefly on in terms of your timescale. So gateway, gateway two, for instance, which is your your design, um, you're looking at having to obviously submit all those plans, etc. And, and then the BSR have within basically 12 weeks um, of the date of the submission um, in order to de- determine the application. Uh, eight weeks of that uh, for um, existing high-risk buildings, so slightly shorter period. Um, and it, I think it's, it's right to question whether that will be the the timescale which is complied with. But, you know, if, if the BSI have come out and given that as the indicative timescale, then you have to have hope that that will be the position. And that's where the professional teams behind the, the scenes can help themselves by ensuring that the information, the application submitted at that gateway is is right. Because we've had, I think it was for gateway one, uh, the BSR came out and published that 56% of applications have been rejected and had to, you know, start start again and amend and, and try again. And, you know, we're in an entirely new regime here. So it's expected that there's going to be those internal teething problems of the project teams having to work out exactly what is required for that certain project to get the get the tick, get the green light from the BSR. But in the backdrop of that, you know, that 12-week period for Gateway 2, um, looking at Gateway 3, you've obviously got your hard stop there. So you've got eight-week uh, period for the determination of the application. And those are all going to have to be taken into account with with your construction contracts, with your project programs generally, potentially, you know, thinking through any change control procedures that, that might happen. We're talking about big projects here with higher risk buildings. There might well be justifiable major or major changes that need to be notified to the BSR and that all needs to be weaved into to both ensure that your project gets built and it gets your final certificate and you can occupy and sell it on whatever you want to do but also internally as a team that you continue that collegiate collaborative working um, approach and it doesn't lead to the another delay who's to blame damages you know etc you sure, don't want sure, sure. to get down that negative spiral of it so it's it's definitely something that needs to be reviewed and thought through but the takeaway message is is if you can do your absolute best as the project team to import that competency and and get the green light upon those submissions and have that really robust change control process within your projects and you know fingers crossed that those various states will you know yeah, but it's one thing saying that they get rejected, right? Which is, you know, fair enough. But if you're talking about a 12 week hiatus, which is what you're saying, you go to you're just about a good tender, let's say, and you have to have a 12 weeks, 12 weeks in your program where you're just sitting on your hands waiting to say to regulate to come back and say it's approved before you can even tender. And mm-hmm. at the end, you can, com- you complete a building. So you have at up to and including practical completion quality. Then you have to submit that information to the Burning Safety Regulator for eight weeks. This is quite, this is quite. Yeah, but it's, I think it's important, it's important to not um, not be so, not be so cynical is what I was going to say. It's important to not look at the gateway regime at such a high level that you then kind of bring up those concerns, etc. Because um, gateway two, for instance, you've got the um, kind of the, 
additional guidance that the BSR have given on construction activities. So your your position on the on Gateway Two is that they determine the application within twelve weeks of the date of the submission, which will then be granted subject to the satisfaction that it meets the functional requirements, etc. And that it's your hard stop in the development process, meaning that no construction activities can be commenced prior to that approval. But in defining your construction activities. So that means undertaking any element of permanent building works described in the building control application. That then means that the carrying out of site setup, demolition, stripping out, excavation of trial holes, installation of test piles falls outside that definition. So we're not saying here that for 12 weeks you sit twiddling your thumbs and you're not allowed to put a shovel in the ground. Unless unless they come back and refuse it or they want major changes. I know the onus then is on the designer to mm-hmm. make sure that doesn't happen. I get all that, but yeah. you know, it could. Who's going to who's going to say the who's going to say? If I were you, Mister Client, I'd crack on, dig the foundations, right? You know, do all the kind of groundwork, site mm. scrape, and all the rest of it. Set up your cabins. Do go through the tender process, um, and don't worry, we'll we'll be fine. Because I wouldn't do that. Mm. I'd tell the client to wait. Yeah, no, I th- and I think I think it's a, it's an interesting point to raise, but it, it has to come back to the significance of getting it right, and it doesn't mean that you you know it doesn't mean every single aspect has to be you know as built you know multiple years down the line once it's reached that occupation stage and got through you know the gateway three requirements, but it needs to be going into this with the confidence in your application and the kind of accompanying documentation that you think the BSR are going to say yes. They might have a few questions which you can kind of work through, but they are going to say yes. And it has to be otherwise, as you said, otherwise nothing will be done during that period. And there's going to be the mistrust within the, the project teams that things haven't been done to the required standard. And this isn't, you know, the regime needs to work with everything coming together. And that's how then the gateways feed in and you drop through because you've got your competencies, you've got your various duty holders, you've done your training, you've doing you're doing everything you can to set yourself up for that success. Um yeah, yeah. because, you know, as you yeah, as you said, the the impact otherwise is you spend 12 weeks of the program not achieving anything. And, and the BSR are trying to come out and show you that, you know, construction activities isn't everything. There are aspects you can still keep proceeding on with. Mm. And ultimately it's going to be up to the the contract drafters like myself, like the you know other supporting uh, entities and the client teams, in order to ensure that the contracts are set up right for those high risk buildings, to make sure that the gateway regimes uh, kind of they slot in and it reflects the terms of your contract and how things work with risk apportionment and liability, etc. But right. it is it's, it's an interesting topic and it's it's going to be one that. Um, you know, we'll certainly continue to monitor in terms of how, you know, now the gateways are alive, how this is going to work as a as a full regime. No, no, fine, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I was mm. reading that uh, they they are mandated, started, statutorily mandated to be able to troll existing building control officers uh, who are no longer um, able to work on high rise buildings higher risk buildings uh, if they if they if the demand requires they take them they can insist uh, so what impact that might have on as it happens domestic extension mm-hmm. markets um you know for whom uh, they are not normally providing services we, we can only uh, guess but look um Final point, since we've covered an awful lot of ground here, maybe this is a moot point now. Uh, if there's anything else 
I think one thing that we haven't touched on is golden thread of information. Mm-hmm. That was a, a concept which when it was, you know, being deliberated um, within the kind of draft regime, um, people were quite confused by. I mean, what form does it take? Because, again, it got confused a little bit with the information that the leaseholder should have available or that little red kind of box that, you know, when the fire brigade charge in, yeah. they can open up and kind of work out where they're going. Whether that's the golden thread or whether that's part of a golden thread or that's got nothing to do with it, and that's just the fire information. But also yeah. whether the leaseholders have information to the golden thread, which obviously they, they must. But, you know, if that's a BIM USB stick, then that's no use to man no beast for yeah. most people. Uh, so, you know, is it, is it a set of blueprints folded up somewhere? Anyway. Yeah. Um, so essentially, your, your golden thread of information, this lovely, lovely term, which is now more understood, is essentially the information relating to the original design intentions, subsequent changes uh, to the building, ensuring that's captured, preserved and available for the use in the management of the building safety risk throughout the life cycle of the building. Now, that as a comprehensive definition is one that really does cover everything. And that's the point. We we want to get to a position that on construction of your higher risk building in 10 years time, someone can go to this, you know, wonderful, you know, it's going to probably be digitalized, wonderful piece of um, detail and see, oh, okay, that change happened. This person ticked it off. That's why they did it. This is how they manage the building safety risks involved versus the position we've been in before where, where there isn't that transparency and accountability and, and tracking through. So the BSR covers it in their website and they talk about keeping it digitally, keeping it securely. It's the single source of truth, which I think is a, a really good kind of um, explanation of what the golden thread is um, available to people who need the information to do a job available when the person needs information presented in a way that people can use so that that kind of point you've just raised there about BIM how do you make sure that that's accessible to the the diversity of jobs and things that could happen in the future of that building's life cycle Um, but ultimately it's going to be one that teams are really going to have to think about because the golden thread needs to be maintained during during your development it's not something that you sit down at the end of the project and you go right let's start the golden thread you need to be understanding what your end product is hopefully aiming to achieve and then be actively working on that in compliance with your various duties handing that over to your accountable persons principal accountable persons at the end in order to to achieve that compliance so look that is it. Kayla, I've taken far more of your time than uh, I anticipated, but it was fantastically interesting. So that was Kayla Robanski, a solicitor from Burgess Salmon on www.burges-salmon.com. That was a terrific introduction to the issue. Hopefully it's given you food for thought. We intend Shortly, as we've been saying, to do a part two on this podcast on other roles and responsibilities, the accountable person, the building safety levy, etc., and now the golden thread. Um, But that's all we have time for today. So please tune into the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Many thanks for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.